CD 9. Kumi chewed his fingernails distractedly. Fire, he said. That'd stop them. They're very inflammable. Or water. They'd probably dissolve. Some of them were destroying pyramids, said the high priest of Juff, the cobra-headed god of Papyrus. People always come back from the dead in such a bad temper, said another priest. Kumi watched the approaching army in mounting bewilderment. Where's Dios? he said. The old high priest was pushed to the front of the crowd. What shall I say to them? Kumi demanded. It would be wrong to say that Dios smiled. It wasn't an action he often felt called upon to perform, but his mouth creased at the edges and his eyes went half-hooded. You could tell them, he said, that new times demand new men. You could tell them that it is time to make way for younger people with fresh ideas. You could tell them that they are outmoded. You could tell them all that. They'll kill me. Would they be that anxious for your eternal company, I wonder? You're still high priest. Why don't you talk to them? said Dios. Don't forget to tell them that they are to be dragged kicking and screaming into the century of the cobra. He handed Kumi the staff, or whatever this century is called, he added. Kumi felt the eyes of the assembled brethren and sistren upon him. He cleared his throat, adjusted his robe, and turned to face the mummies. They were chanting something, one word, over and over again. He couldn't quite make it out, but it seemed to have worked them up into a rage. He raised the staff and the carved wooden snakes looked unusually alive in the flat light. The gods of the disc, and here is meant that the great consensus gods, who really do exist in dumb manifesting, their semi-detached Valhalla on the world's impossibly high central mountain, where they pass the time observing the petty antics of mortal men and organising petitions about how the influx of the ice giants has lowered property values in the celestial regions, the gods of the disc have always been fascinated by humanity's incredible ability to say exactly the wrong thing at the wrong time. They're not talking here of such easy errors as it's perfectly safe or the ones that growl a lot don't bite, but of simple little sentences which are injected into difficult situations with the same general effect as a steel bar dropped into the bearings of a 3,000 RPM, 660 megawatt steam turbine and connoisseurs of mankind's tendency to put his pedal extremity where his tongue should be, are agreed that when the judge's envelopes are opened, then Hoot Kumi's fine performance in Be Gone From This Place Foul Shades will be a contender for all-time bloody stupid greeting. The front row of ancestors halted and were pushed forward a little by the press of those behind. King Tepikaimon the twenty-seventh, who by common consent among the other twenty-six Tepikaimons was spokesman, lurched on alone and picked up the trembling Kumi by his arms. "'What did you say?' he said. Kumi's eyes rolled. His mouth opened and shut, but his voice wisely decided not to come out. Tepikaimon pushed his bandaged face close to the priest's pointed nose. "'I remember you,' he growled. "'I've seen you oiling around the place.' A bad hat, if ever I saw one. I remember thinking that. He glared around at the others. You're all priests, aren't you? Come to say sorry, have you? Where's Dios? The ancestors pressed forward, muttering. When you've been dead for hundreds of years, you're not inclined to feel generous to those people who assured you that you were going to have a lovely time. 
There was a scuffle in the middle of the crowd as King Pasam Nutkahar, who had spent five thousand years with nothing to look at but the inside of a lid, was restrained by younger colleagues. Tepikaimon switched his attention back to Kumi, who hadn't gone anywhere. Foul shades, was it? he said. Um, said Kumi. Put him down. Dios gently took the staff from Kumi's unresisting fingers and said, I am Dios, the High Priest. Why are you here? It was a perfectly calm and reasonable voice, with overtones of concern but indubitable authority. It was a tone of voice the pharaohs of the Jelly Baby had heard for thousands of years, a voice which had regulated the days, prescribed the rituals, cut the time into carefully turned segments, interpreted the ways of gods to men. It was the sound of authority, which stirred antique memories among the ancestors and caused them to look embarrassed and shuffle their feet. One of the younger pharaohs lurched forward. "'You bastard!' he croaked. "'You laid us out and shut us away, one by one, and you went on. People thought the name was passed on, but it was always you. How old are you, Dios?' There was no sound. No one moved. A breeze stirred the dust a little. Dios sighed. I did not mean to, he said. There was so much to do. There were never enough hours in the day. Truly, I did not realize what was happening. I thought it was refreshing, nothing more. I suspected nothing. I noted the passing of the rituals, not the years. "'Come from a long-lived family, do you?' said Tepikaimon sarcastically. Dios stared at him, his lips moving. "'Family,' he said at last, his voice softened from its normal bark. "'Family. Yes, I must have had a family, mustn't I? "'But you know, I can't remember. "'Memory is the first thing that goes. "'The pyramids don't seem to preserve it, strangely.' "'This is Dios, the footnote-keeper of history,' said Tepikaimon. "'Ah!' the high priest smiled. "'Memory goes from the head, but it is all around me, every scroll and book. "'That's the history of the kingdom, man. "'Yes, my memory.' "'The king relaxed a little. "'Sheer horrified fascination was unravelling the knot of fury. "'How old are you?' he said. I think seven thousand years, but sometimes it seems much longer. Really, seven thousand years? Yes, said Dios. How could any man stand it? said the king. Dios shrugged. Seven thousand years is just one day at a time, he said. Slowly, with the occasional wince, he got down on one knee and held up his staff in shaking hands. "'Oh, kings,' he said, "'I have always existed only to serve.' There was a long, extremely embarrassed pause. "'We will destroy the pyramids,' said Far-Re-Ptah, pushing forward. "'You will destroy the kingdom,' said Dios. "'I cannot allow it.' You cannot allow it? Yes. What will we be without the pyramids? said Dios. Speaking for the dead, said Far-Re-Ptah, we will be free. 
But the kingdom will be just another small country, said Dios, and to their horror the ancestors saw tears in his eyes. All that we hold dear, you will cast adrift in time, uncertain, without guidance, changeable. Then it can take its chances, said Tepikaimon. Stand aside, Dios. Dios held up his staff. The snakes around it uncoiled and hissed at the king. Be still, said Dios. Dark lightning crackled between the ancestors. Dios stared at the staff in astonishment. It had never done this before. But seven thousand years of his priests had believed in their hearts that the staff of Dios could rule this world and the next. In the sudden silence there was the faint chink high up of a knife being wedged between two black marble slabs. The pyramid pulsed under Tepic, and the marble was as slippery as ice. The inward slope wasn't the help he had expected. The thing, he told himself, is not to look up or down, but straight ahead into the marble, parceling the impossible height into manageable sections. Just like time. That's how we survive infinity. We kill it by breaking it up into small bits. He was aware of shouts below him and glanced briefly over his shoulder. He was barely a third of the way up, but he could see the crowds across the river, a grey mass speckled with the pale blobs of upturned faces. Closer to, the pale army of the dead, facing the small grey group of priests, with Dios in front of them. There was some sort of argument going on. The sun was on the horizon. He reached up, located the next crack, found a handhold. Dios spotted Pataclasp's head, peering over the debris, and sent a couple of priests to bring him back. Two B followed, his carefully folded brother under his arm. "'What is the boy doing?' Dios demanded. "'Oh, Dios, he said he was going to flare off the pyramid,' said Pataclasp. "'How can he do that? "'Oh, Lord, he said he is going to cap it off before the sun sets.' "'Is it possible?' Dios demanded, turning to the architect. Tooby hesitated. Uh, it may be, he said. And then what will happen? Will we return to the world outside? Well, it, it depends on whether the dimensional effect ratchets, as it were, and is stable in each state, or if, on the contrary, the pyramid is acting as a piece of rubber under tension. His voice stuttered to a halt under the intensity of Dios's stare. I don't know, he admitted. Back to the world outside said Dios. Not our world. Our world is the valley. Ours is a world of order. Men need order. He raised his staff. That's my son, shouted Tepikaimon. Don't you dare try anything. That's the king. The ranks of ancestors swayed, but couldn't break the spell. Uh, Dios, said Kumi. Dios turned, his eyebrows raised. You spoke, he said. Uh, if it is the king, I, um, that is, we, think perhaps you should let him get on with it. Uh, don't you think that would be a really good idea? Dios's staff kicked, and the priests felt the cold bands of restraint freeze their limbs. I gave my life for the kingdom, said the high priest. I gave it over and over again. Everything it is I created. I cannot fail it now. And then he saw the gods. Tepic eased himself up another couple of feet and then gently reached down to pull a knife out of the marble. 
It wasn't going to work, though. Knife-climbing was for those short and awkward passages, and frowned on anyway because it suggested you'd chosen a wrong route. It wasn't for this sort of thing, unless you had unlimited knives. He glanced over his shoulder again as strange barred shadows flickered across the face of the pyramid. From out of the sunset, where they had been engaged in their eternal squabbling, the gods were returning. They staggered and lurched across the fields and reed beds, heading for the pyramid. Near brainless though they were, they understood what it was. Perhaps they even understood what Tepic was trying to do. Their assorted animal faces made it hard to be certain, but it looked as though they were very angry. "'Are you going to control them, Dios?' said the king. "'Are you going to tell them that the world should be changeless?' Dios stared up at the creatures jostling one another as they waded the river. There were too many teeth, too many lolling tongues. The bits of them that were human were sloughing away. A lion-head god of justice? Put, Dios recalled the name, was using its scales as a flail to beat one of the river gods. Chefet, the dog-headed god of metalwork, was growling and attacking his fellows at random with his hammer. This was Chefet, Dios thought, the god that he had created to be an example to men in the art of wire and filigree and small beauty. Yet it had worked. He'd taken a desert rabble and shown them all he could remember of the arts of civilization and the secrets of the pyramids. He'd needed gods then. The trouble with gods is that after enough people start believing in them, they begin to exist. And what begins to exist isn't what was originally intended. Chefet. Chefet, thought Dios. Maker of rings, weaver of metal. Now he's out of our heads and see how his nails grow into claws. This is not how I imagined him. Stop, he instructed. I order you to stop. You will obey me. I made you. They also lack gratitude. King Tepikaimon felt the power around him weaken as Dios turned all his attention to ecclesiastical matters. He saw the tiny shape halfway up the wall of the pyramid, saw it falter. The rest of the ancestors saw it too, and as one corpse they knew what to do. Dios could wait. This was family. Tepic heard the snap of the handle under his foot, slid a little, and hung by one hand. He'd got another knife in above him, but no, no good. He hadn't got the reach. For practical purposes, his arms felt like short lengths of wet rope. Now, if he spread-eagled himself as he slid, he might be able to slow enough. He looked down and saw the climbers coming towards him, in a tide that was tumbling upwards. The ancestors rose up the face of the pyramid silently like creepers, each new row settling into position on the shoulders of the generation beneath, while the younger ones climbed on over them. Bony hands grabbed Tepic as the wave of edificiers broke around him, and he was half pushed, half pulled up the sloping wall. Voices like the creak of sarcophagi filled his ears, moaning encouragement. "'Well done, boy!' groaned a crumbling mummy, hauling him bodily onto its shoulder. You remind me of me when I was alive. To you, son. Got him, said the corpse above, lifting Tepic easily on one outstretched arm. That's fine family spirit, lad. Best wishes from your great-great-great-great-uncle, although I don't suppose you remember me. Coming up! Other ancestors were climbing on past Tepic as he rose from hand to hand. Ancient fingers with a grip like steel clutched at him, hoisting him onwards. The pyramid grew narrower. Down below, Pataclus watched thoughtfully. What a workforce, he said. I mean, the ones at the bottom are supporting the whole weight. 
Dad, said Tooby, I think we'd better run. Those gods are getting closer. Do you think we could employ them? said Pataclus, ignoring him. They're dead. They probably won't want high wages. And Dad, sort of self-build. You said no more pyramids, Dad. Never again, you said. Now come on. Tepic scrambled to the top of the pyramid, supported by the last two ancestors. One of them was his father. I don't think you've met your great-grandma, he said, indicating the shorter bandaged figure who nodded gently at Tepic. He opened his mouth. There's no time, she said. You're doing fine. He glanced at the sun, which, old professional that it was, chose that moment to drop below the horizon. The gods had crossed the river, their progress slowed only by their tendency to push and shove amongst themselves, and were lurching through the buildings of the necropolis. Several were clustered around the spot where Dios had been. The ancestors dropped away, sliding back down the pyramid as fast as they had climbed it, leaving Tepic alone on a few square feet of rock. A couple of stars came out. He saw white shapes below as the ancestors hurried away on some private errand of their own, lurching at a surprising speed towards the broad band of the river. The gods abandoned their interest in Dios, this strange little human with the stick and the cracked voice. The nearest god, a crocodile-headed thing, jerked onto the plaza before the pyramid, squinted up at Tepic, and reached out towards him. Tepic fumbled for a knife, wondering what sort was appropriate for gods. And along the Dajel, the pyramids began to flare their meagre store of hoarded time. Priests and ancestors fled as the ground began to shake. Even the gods looked bewildered. 2B snatched his father's arm and dragged him away. Come on, he yelled into his ear. We can't be around here when it goes off, otherwise you'll be put to bed on a coat hanger. Around them, several other pyramids struck their flares, thin and reedy affairs that were barely visible in the afterglow. Dad, I said we've got to go! Pataclusp was dragged backwards across the flagstones, still staring at the hulking outline of the Great Pyramid. There's someone still there, look, he said, and pointed to a figure alone on the plaza. 2B peered into the gloom. He's only Dios, the high priest, he said. I expect he's got some plan in mind. Best not to meddle in the affairs of priests. Now, will you come on? The crocodile-headed god turned its snout back and forth, trying to focus on Tepic without the advantage of binocular vision. This close, its body was slightly transparent, as though someone had sketched in all the lines and got bored before it was time to do the shading. It trod on a small tomb, crushing it to powder. A hand, like a cluster of canoes with claws on, hovered over Tepic. The pyramid trembled and the stone under his feet felt warm, but it resolutely forbore from any signs of wanting to flare. The hand descended. Tepic sank on one knee and, out of desperation, raised the knife over his head in both hands. The light glinted for a moment off the tip of the blade, and then... the Great Pyramid flared. It did it in absolute silence to begin with, sending up a spike of eye-torturing flame that turned the whole kingdom into a crisscross of black shadow and white light, a flame that might have turned any watchers not just into a pillar of salt, but into a complete condiment set of their choice. It exploded like an unwound dandelion, silent as starlight, searing as a supernova. Only after it had been bathing the necropolis in its impossible brilliance for several seconds did the sound come, and it was sound that winds itself up through the bones, creeps into every cell of the body, and tries with some success to turn them inside out. 
It was too loud to be called noise. There is a sound so loud that it prevents itself from being heard, and this was that kind of sound. Eventually, it condescended to drop out of the cosmic scale and became simply the loudest noise anyone hearing it had ever experienced. The noise stopped, filling the air with the dark metallic clang of sudden silence. The light went out, lancing the night with blue and purple afterimages. It was not the silence and darkness of conclusion, but of pause, like the moment of equilibrium when a thrown ball runs out of acceleration but has yet to have gravity drawn to its attention and for a brief moment thinks that the worst is over. This time it was heralded by a shrill whistling out of the clear sky and a swirl in the air that became a glow, became a flame, became a flare that sizzled downwards into the pyramid, punching into the mass of black marble. Fingers of lightning crackled out and grounded on the lesser tombs around it, so that serpents of white fire burned their way from pyramid to pyramid across the necropolis, and the air filled with the stink of burning stone. In the middle of the firestorm, the great pyramid appeared to lift up a few inches on a beam of incandescence and turn through ninety degrees. This was almost certainly the special type of optical illusion which can take place even though no one is actually looking at it. And then, with deceptive slowness and considerable dignity, it exploded. It was almost too crass a word. What it did was this. It came apart ponderously into building-sized chunks which drifted gently away from one another, flying serenely out and over the necropolis. Several of them struck other pyramids, badly damaging them in a lazy, unself-conscious way, and then bounded on in silence until they ploughed to a halt behind a small mountain of rubble. Only then did the boom come. It went on for quite a long time. Grey dust rolled over the kingdom. Pataclusp dragged himself upright and groped ahead, gingerly, until he walked into someone. He shuddered when he thought about the kind of people he'd seen walking around lately, but thought didn't come easily because something appeared to have hit him on the head recently. Is that you, Dad? Yes, said Pataclusp. It's me, Dad. I'm glad it's you, son. Can you see anything? No, it's all mist and fog. Thank the gods for that. I thought it was me. It is you, isn't it? You said. Y yes, Dad. Is your brother all right? I've got him safe in my pocket, Dad. Good, so long as nothing's happened to him. They inched forward, clambering over lumps of masonry they could barely see. Something exploded, Dad, said Tooby slowly. I think it was the pyramid. Pataclasp rubbed the top of his head, where two tons of flying rock had come within a sixteenth of an inch of fitting him for one of his own pyramids. It was that dodgy cement we bought from Mirko the Ephebian, I expect. I think it was a bit worse than a moody lintel, Dad, said Tooby. In fact, I think it was a lot worse. It looked a bit, what's the name, a bit on the sandy side. I think you should find somewhere to sit down, Dad, said Tooby, as kindly as possible. Here's 2A. Hang on to him. He crept on alone, climbing over a slab of what felt very suspiciously like black marble. What he wanted, he decided, was a priest. They had to be useful for something, and this seemed the sort of time one might need one. For solace, or possibly, he felt obscurely, to beat their head in with a rock. What he found instead was someone on their hands and knees coughing. 2B helped him. It was definitely a him. He'd been briefly afraid it might be an it, and sat him on another lump of, yes, almost certainly marble. "'Are you a priest?' he said, fumbling in the rubble. "'I'm Dill. 
Chief Embalmer, the figure muttered. Paraclasp Tooby, Paracosmic Architect, Tooby began, and then, suspecting that architects were not going to be too popular around here for a while, quickly corrected himself. I'm a, an engineer, he said. Are you all right? Don't know. What happened? I think the pyramid exploded, Tooby volunteered. Are we dead? I shouldn't think so. You're walking and talking, after all. Dill shivered. That's no guideline. Take it from me. What's an engineer? Oh, uh, uh, a builder of aqueducts, said Tooby quickly. They're the coming thing, you know. Dill stood up a little shakily. Ah, uh, he said, I need a drink. Let's find the river. They found Tepic first. He was clinging to a small truncated pyramid section that had made a moderate-sized crater when it landed. "'I know him,' said Tooby. "'He's the lad who was on top of the pyramid. That's ridiculous. How could you survive that?' "'Why is there all corn sprouting out of it, too?' wondered Dill. "'I mean, perhaps there's some kind of effect if you're right in the centre of the flare or something,' said Tooby, thinking aloud. A sort of calm area or something, like in the middle of a whirlpool. He reached instinctively for his wax tablet and then stopped himself. Man was never intended to understand things he meddled with. Is he dead? he said. Don't look at me, said Dill, stepping back. He'd been running through his mind the alternative occupations now open to him. Upholstery sounded attractive. At least chairs didn't get up and walk after you'd stuffed them. 2B bent over the body. Look what he's got in his hand, he said, gently bending back the fingers. It's a piece of melted metal. What's he got that for? Tepic dreamed. He saw seven fat cows and seven thin cows, and one of them was riding a bicycle. He saw some camels singing, and the song straightened out the wrinkles in reality. He saw a finger right on the wall of a pyramid... Going forth is easy, going back requires, continued on next wall. He walked around the pyramid where the finger continued, an effort of will because it is much harder, thank you. Tepic considered this, and it occurred to him that there was one thing left to do which he had not done. He'd never known how to before, but now he could see that it was just numbers arranged in a special way. Everything that was magical was just a way of describing the world in words it couldn't ignore. He gave a grunt of effort. There was a brief moment of speed. Dill and 2B looked around as long shafts of light sparkled through the mists and dust, turning the landscape into old gold. And the sun came up. The sergeant cautiously opened the hatch in the horse's belly. When the expected flurry of spears did not materialise, he ordered Autocue to let out the rope ladder, climbed down it, and looked across the chill morning desert. The new recruit followed him down and stood, hopping from one sandal to another on sand that was nearly freezing now and would be frying by lunchtime. There, said the sergeant, pointing. See the Tortian lines, lad? Looks like a row of wooden horses to me, sergeant, said Autocue. The one on the end's on rockers. That'll be the officers. <laughs> Those Tortians must think we're simple. The sergeant stamped some life into his legs, took a few breaths of fresh air and walked back to the ladder. Come on, lad, he said. Why have we got to go back up there? The sergeant paused, his foot on a rope rung. Use some common, laddie. They're not going to come and take our horses if they see us hanging around outside, are they? 
Stands to reason. You sure they're going to come, then? said Otto Q. The sergeant frowned at him. Look, soldier, he said, anyone bloody stupid enough to think we're going to drag a lot of horses full of soldiers back to our city is certainly daft enough to drag ours all the way back to theirs. QED. QED, Sarge? It means get back up the bloody ladder, lad. Otto Q saluted. Permission to be excused first, Sarge? Excused what? Excused, Sarge, said Otto Q, a shade desperately. I mean, it's a bit cramped in the horse, Sarge, if you know what I mean. You're going to have to learn a bit of willpower if you want to stay in the horse, soldiers, boy. You know that? Yes, Sarge, said Otto Q miserably. You got one minute. Thanks, Sarge. When the hatch closed above him, Otto Q sidled over to one of the horse's massive legs and put it to a use for which it wasn't originally intended. And it was while he was staring vaguely ahead, lost in that zen-like contemplation which occurs at moments like this, that there was a faint pop in the air, and an entire river valley opened up in front of him. It's not the sort of thing that ought to happen to a thoughtful lad, especially one who has to wash his own uniform. A breeze from the sea blew into the kingdom, hinting at, no, positively roaring suggestions of salt, shellfish, and sun-soaked tide-lines. A few rather puzzled seabirds wheeled over the necropolis, where the wind scurried among the fallen masonry and covered with sand the memorials to ancient kings, and the birds said more with a simple bowel movement than Ozymandias ever managed to say. The wind had a cool, not unpleasant edge to it. The people out repairing the damage caused by the gods felt an urge to turn their faces towards it, as fish in a pond turn towards an influx of clear fresh water. No one worked in the necropolis. Most of the pyramids had blown their upper levels clean off and stood smoking gently like recently extinct volcanoes. Here and there slabs of black marble littered the landscape. One of them had nearly decapitated a fine statue of Hat, the vulture-headed god. The ancestors had vanished. No one was volunteering to go and look for them. Around midday, a ship came up the Dajel under full sail. It was a deceptive ship. It seemed to wallow like a fat and unprotected hippo, and it was only after watching it for some time that anyone would realise that it was also making remarkably fast progress. It dropped anchor outside the palace. After a while, it let down a dinghy. Tepic sat on the throne and watched the life of the kingdom reassemble itself like a smashed mirror that is put together again and reflects the same old light in new and unexpected ways. No one was quite sure on what basis he was on the throne, but no one else was at all keen on occupying it, and it was a relief to hear instructions issued in a clear, confident voice. It is amazing what people will obey if a clear and confident voice is used, and the kingdom was well used to a clear, confident voice. Besides, giving orders stopped him thinking about things, like, for example, what would happen next but at least the gods had gone back to not existing again, which made it a whole lot easier to believe in them, and the grass didn't seem to be growing under his feet any more. Maybe I can put the kingdom together again, he thought. But then, what can I do with it? If only we could find Dios. He always knew what to do. That was the main thing about him. A guard pushed his way through the milling throng of priests and nobles. Excuse me, Josiah, he said. There's a merchant to see you. He says it's urgent. 
Not now, man. There's representatives of the Tesortian and Ephebian armies coming to see me in an hour, and there's a great deal that's got to be done first. I can't go around seeing any salesman who happen to be passing. What's he selling, anyway? Uh, carpets, Yesiah. Carpets? It was Chida, grinning like half a watermelon, followed by several of the crew. He walked up the hall, staring around at the frescoes and hangings. Because it was Chida, he was probably costing them out. By the time he reached the throne, he was drawing a double line under the total. Nice place, he said, wrapping up thousands of years of architectural accumulation in a mere two syllables. You'll never guess what happened. We just happened to be sailing along the coast, and suddenly there was this river. One minute cliffs, next minute river. There's a funny thing, I thought. Bed old Tepi's up there somewhere. Where's Petracci? I knew you were complaining about the lack of the old home comforts, so we brought you this carpet. I said, where's Petracci? The crew moved aside, leaving a grinning Alphonse to cut the strings around the carpet and shake it out. It uncurled swiftly across the floor in a flurry of dust balls and moths, and eventually Petracci, who continued rolling until her head hit Tepic's boot. He helped her to her feet and tried to pick bits of fluff out of her hair as she swayed backwards and forwards. She ignored him and turned to Chidder, red with breathlessness and fury. "'I could have died in there!' she shouted. "'Lots of other things have, by the smell and the heat!' "'You said it worked for Queen Wassername, Ram Jam Hurrah, or whoever,' said Chidder. "'Don't blame me. At home a necklace or something is usually the thing.' "'I bet she had a decent carpet,' snapped Petracci. "'Not something stuck in a bloody hold for six months.' "'You're lucky we had one at all,' said Chidder mildly. "'It was your idea.' "'Hm,' said Petracci. "'She turned to Tepic. "'Hello,' she said. "'This was meant to be a startling original surprise.' "'It worked,' said Tepic fervently. "'It really worked.' Chidder lay on a daybed on the palace's wide veranda while three handmaidens took turns to peel grapes for him. A pitcher of beer stood cooling in the shade. He was grinning amiably. On a blanket nearby, Alphonse lay on his stomach, feeling extremely awkward. The mistress of the women had found out that in addition to the tattoos on his forearms, his back was a veritable illustrated history of exotic practices, and had brought the girls out to be educated. He winced occasionally as her pointer stabbed at items of particular interest and stuffed his fingers firmly in his great scarred ears to shut out the giggles. At the far end of the veranda, given privacy by unspoken agreement, Tepic sat with Petracci. Things were not going well. Everything changed, he said. I'm not going to be king. You are the king, she said. You can't change things. I can. I can abdicate. It's very simple. If I'm not really the king, then I can go whenever I please. If I am the king, then the king's word is final, and I can abdicate. If we can change sex by decree, we can certainly change station. They can find a relative to do the job. I must have dozens. The job? Anyway, you said there was only your auntie. Tepic frowned. Aunt Klep Ptah Re was not, on reflection, the kind of monarch a kingdom needed if it was going to make a fresh start. She had a number of stoutly held views on a variety of subjects, but most of them involved the flaying alive of people she disapproved of. This meant most people under the age of thirty-five to start with. 
Well, someone else then, he said. It shouldn't be difficult. We've always seemed to have more nobles than really necessary. We'll just have to find one who has the dream about cows. Oh, the one where there's fat cows and thin cows, said Petracci. Yes, it's sort of ancestral. It's a nuisance, I know that much. One of them's always grinning and playing a wimblehorn. It looks like a trombone to me, said Tepic. It's a ceremonial wimblehorn if you look closely, she said. Well, I expect everyone sees it a bit differently. I don't think it matters. He sighed and watched the unnamed unloading. It seemed to have more than the expected number of feather mattresses, and several of the people wandering bemusedly down the gangplank were holding toolboxes and lengths of pipe. I think you're going to find it difficult, said Petracci. You can't say, all those who dream about cows, please step forward. It'll give the game away. I can't just hang around until someone happens to mention it, can I? Be reasonable, he snapped. How many people are likely to say, hey, I had this funny dream about cows last night? Apart from you, I mean. They stared at one another. And she's my sister, said Tepic. The priests nodded. It was left to Kumi to put it into words. He'd just spent ten minutes going through the files with the mistress of the women. Her mother was, uh, your late father's favourite, he said. He took a great deal of interest in her upbringing, as you know, and uh, it would appear that, um, yes, she may be your aunt, of course, the concubines are never very good at paperwork, but most likely your sister. She looked at him with tear-filled eyes. That doesn't make any difference, does it? she whispered. Tepic stared at his feet. Yes, he said. I think it does, really. He looked up at her. But you can be queen, he added. He glared at the priests. Can't she? he stated firmly. The high priests looked at one another. Then they looked at Petracci, who stood alone, her shoulders shaking. Small, palace-trained, used to taking orders. They looked at Kumi. She would be ideal, he said. There was a murmur of suddenly confident agreement. There you are, then, said Tepic consolingly. She glared at him. He backed away. So, I'll be off, he said. I don't need to pack anything. It's all right. Just like that, she said. Is that all? Isn't there anything you're going to say? He hesitated halfway to the door. You could stay, he told himself. It wouldn't work, though. It'd end up a terrible mess. You'd probably end up splitting the kingdom between you. Just because fate throws you together doesn't mean fate's got it right. Anyway, you've been fourth. Camels are more important than pyramids, he said slowly. It's something we should always remember. He ran for it while she was looking for something to throw. The sun reached the peak of noon without beetles, and Kumi hovered by the throne like Hat the vulture-headed god. It will please your majesty to confirm my succession as high priest, he said. What? Petracci was sitting with her chin cupped in one hand. She waved the other hand at him. Oh, yes, all right, fine. No trace has, alas, been found of Dios. We believe he was very close to the Great Pyramid when it uh, flared. Petracci stared into space. You carry on, she said. 
Kumi preened. The formal coronation will take some time to arrange, he said, taking the golden mask. However, your graciousness will be pleased to wear the mask of authority now, for there is much formal business to be concluded. She looked at the mask. I'm not wearing that, she said flatly. Kumi smiled. Your majesty will be pleased to wear the mask of authority, he said. No, said Patrachi. Kumi's smile crazed a little around the edges as he attempted to get to grips with this new concept. He was sure Dios had never had this trouble. He got over the problem by sidling round it. Sidling had stood him in good stead all his life. He wasn't going to desert it now. He put the mask down very carefully on a stool. "'It is the first hour,' he said. "'Your Majesty will wish to conduct the ritual of the Ibis, "'and then graciously grant an audience "'to the military commanders of the Tesortian and Ephebian armies. "'Both are seeking permission to cross the kingdom. "'Your Majesty will forbid this. "'At the second hour there will—' "'Petracci sat drumming her fingers on the arms of the throne. "'Then she took a deep breath. "'I'm going to have a bath,' she said. Kumi rocked back and forth a bit. "'It is the first hour,' he repeated, unable to think of anything else. "'Your Majesty will wish to conduct Kumi?' "'Yes, O oh noble Queen?' "'Shut up!' "'The ritual of the Ibis,' Kumi moaned. "'I'm sure you're capable of doing it yourself. "'You look like a man who does things himself, if ever I saw one,' she added sourly. "'The commanders of the Tesortian... "'Tell them,' Petracci began and then paused. "'Tell them,' she repeated, "'that they may both cross, "'not one or the other, you understand? "'Both.' "'But,' Kumi's understanding managed at last "'to catch up with his ears, "'that means they'll end up on opposite sides. "'Good. "'And after that you can order some camels. "'There's a merchant in Ephebe with a good stock. "'Check their teeth first. "'Oh, and then you can ask the captain of the unnamed "'to come and see me.' He was explaining to me what a free port is. "'In your bath, O Queen?' said Kumi, weakly. He couldn't help noticing now how her voice was changing with each sentence as the veneer of upbringing burned away under the blow-lamp of heredity. "'Nothing wrong with that,' she snapped. "'And see about plumbing. Apparently pipes are the thing.' "'For the ass's milk?' said Kumi, who was now totally lost in the desert. A less desiccated culture would have used the phrase, at sea. Shut up, Kumi. Yes, O oh Queen, said Kumi miserably. He'd wanted changes. It was just that he'd wanted things to stay the same as well. The sun dropped to the horizon, entirely unaided. For some people it was turning out to be quite a good day. The reddened light lit up the three male members of the Pataclasp dynasty as they pored over plans for... It, it, it's called a bridge, said 2B. Is that like an aqueduct, said Pataclasp? In reverse sort of thing, said 2B. The water goes underneath, we go over the top. Oh, the king... Uh, the queen won't like that, said Pataclasp. "'The royal family's always been against chaining the holy river with dams and weirs and such like.' "'2B gave a triumphant grin. "'She suggested it,' he said. "'And she graciously went on to say, "'Could we see to it there's places for people to, to stand and drop rocks on the crocodiles?' "'She said that,' 
Large pointy rocks, she said. My word, said Pataclusp. He turned to his other son. You sure you're all right, he said. Feeling fine, Dad, said Toué. No, Pataclusp groped. Headaches or anything? Never felt better, said Toué. Only you haven't asked about the cost, said Pataclusp. I thought perhaps you were still feeling... Fla uh, ill. The Queen has been pleased to ask me to have a look at the royal finances, said Toué. She said priests can't add up. His recent experiences had left him with no ill effects other than a profitable tendency to think at right angles to everyone else, and he sat wreathed in smiles while his mind constructed tariff rates, docking fees, and a complex system of value-added tax which would shortly give the merchant venturers of Ankh-Morpork a nasty shock. Pataclusp thought about all the miles of the virgin Dejel, totally unbridged. And there was plenty of dressed stone around now, millions of tons of the stuff. And you never knew, perhaps on some of those bridges there'd be room for a statue or two. He had the very thing. He put his arms around his son's shoulders. Lads, he said proudly, it's looking really quantum. The setting sun also shone on Dill and Gurn, although in this case it was by a roundabout route through the light well of the palace kitchens. They'd ended up there for no very obvious reason. It was just that it was so depressing in the embalming room, all alone. The kitchen staff worked around them, recognising the air of impenetrable gloom that surrounded the two embalmers. It was never a very sociable job at the best times, and embalmers didn't make friends easily. Anyway, there was a coronation feast to prepare. They sat amid the bustle, observing the future over a jug of beer. "'I expect,' said Gurn, "'that Gwalenda can have a word with her dad.' "'That's it, boy,' said Dill wearily. "'There's a future there. People will always want garlic.' "'Bloody boring stuff, garlic,' said Gurn, with unusual ferocity. "'And you don't get to meet people. That's what I liked about our job. Always new faces.' "'No more pyramids,' said Dill without rancour. "'That's what she said. "'You've done a good job, Master Dill,' she said, "'but I'm going to drag this country kicking and screaming "'into the century of the fruit bat.' "'Cobra?' said Gurn. "'What? "'It's the century of the cobra, not the fruit bat.' "'Whatever,' said Dill irritably. "'He stared miserably into his mug.' That was the trouble now, he reflected. You had to start remembering what century it was. He glared at a tray of canapes. That was the thing these days, everyone fiddling about. He picked up an olive and turned it over and over in his fingers. Can't say I'd feel the same about the old job, mind, said Gurn, draining the jug. But I bet you were proud, master. Dill, I mean. You know, when all your stitching held up like that. Dill, his eyes not leaving the olive, reached dreamily down to his belt and grasped one of his smaller knives for intricate jobs. "'I said you must have felt very sorry it was all over,' said Gurn. Dill swivelled around to get more light and breathed heavily as he concentrated. "'Still, you'll get over it,' said Gurn. "'The important thing is not to let it prey on your mind.' "'Put this stone somewhere,' said Dill. "'Sorry?' Put this stone somewhere, said Dill. Gurn shrugged and took it out of his fingers. 
"'Right,' said Dill, his voice suddenly vibrant with purpose. "'Now, pass me a piece of red pepper.' And the sun shone on the delta, that little infinity of reed beds and mud banks where the Dagel was laying down the silt of the continent. Wading birds bobbed for food in the green maze of stems, and billions of zigzag midges danced over the brackish water. Here, at least, time had always passed, as the delta breathed twice daily the cold, fresh water of the tide. It was coming in now, the foam-crested cusp of it trickling between the reeds. Here and there, soaked and ancient bandages unwound, wriggled for a while like incredibly old snakes, and then, with the minimum of fuss, dissolved. This is most irregular. We're sorry. It's not our fault. How many of you are there? More than 1,300, I'm afraid. Very well, then. Please form an orderly queue. New Bastard was regarding his empty hay rack. It represented a subarray in the general cluster hay containing arbitrary values between zero and K. It didn't have any hay in it. It might, in fact, have a negative value of hay in it, but to the hungry stomach the difference between no hay and minus hay was not of particular interest. It didn't matter how he worked it out. The answer was always the same. It was an equation of classical simplicity. It had a certain clean elegance, which he was not currently in a position to admire. You bastard felt ill-used and hard done by. There was nothing particularly unusual about this, however, since it is the normal state of mind for a camel. He knelt patiently while Tepic packed the saddlebags. We'll avoid Ephib, Tepic said, ostensibly to the camel. We'll go up the end of the Circle Sea, perhaps to Quirm or over the Ramtops. There's all sorts of places. Maybe we'll even look for a few of those lost cities, eh? I expect you'd like that. It's a mistake trying to cheer up camels. You may as well drop meringues into a black hole. The door at the far end of the stable swung open. It was a priest. He looked rather flustered. The priests had been doing a lot of unaccustomed running around today. Uh, he began. Her Majesty commands you not to leave the kingdom, he coughed. He said, Is there a reply? Tepic considered. No, he said. I don't think so. "'Shall I tell her that you will be attending on her presently, shall I?' said the priest, hopefully. "'No.' "'It's all very well for you to say,' said the priest sourly, and slunk off. He was replaced a few minutes later by Kumi, very red in the face. "'Her Majesty requests that you do not leave the kingdom,' he said. Tepic climbed onto you bastard's back and tapped the camel lightly with a prod. "'She really means it,' said Kumi. "'I'm sure she does.' "'She could have you thrown to the sacred crocodiles, you know.' "'I haven't seen many of them around today. "'How are they?' said Tepic, and gave the camel another thump. "'He rode out into the knife-edged daylight "'and along the packed earth streets, "'which time had turned into a surface harder than stone. "'They were thronged with people, "'and every single person ignored him. "'It was a marvellous feeling.' He rode gently along the road to the border and did not stop until he was up in the escarpment, the valley spreading out behind him. A hot wind off the desert rattled the cefacia bushes as he tethered you bastard in the shade, climbed a little further up the rocks and looked back. The valley was old, 
so old that you could believe it had existed first and had watched the rest of the world form around it. Tepic lay with his head on his arms. Of course, it had made itself old. It had been gently stripping itself of futures for thousands of years. Now change was hitting it like the ground hitting an egg. Dimensions were probably more complicated than people thought. Probably so was time. Probably so were people, although people could be more predictable. He watched the column of dust rise outside the palace and work its way through the city, across the narrow patchwork of fields, disappear for a minute in a group of palm trees near the escarpment, and reappear at the foot of the slope. Long before he could see it, he knew there'd be a chariot somewhere in the cloud of sand. He slid back down the rocks and squatted patiently by the roadside. The chariot rattled by eventually, halted some way on, turned awkwardly in the narrow space and trundled back. "'What will you do?' shouted Petracci, leaning over the rail. Tepic bowed. "'And none of that!' she snapped. "'Don't you like being king?' She hesitated. "'Yes,' she said, "'I do.' "'Of course you do,' said Tepic. "'It's in the blood. In the old days people would fight like tigers. Brothers against sisters, cousins against uncles. Dreadful. "'But you don't have to go. I need you.' "'You've got advisers,' said Tepic mildly. I didn't mean that, she snapped. Anyway, there's only Kumi, and he's no good. You're lucky. I had Dios, and he was good. Kumi will be much better. You can learn a lot by not listening to what he has to say. You can go a long way with incompetent advisers. Besides, Chidder will help, I'm sure. He's full of ideas. She coloured. He advanced a few when we were on the ship. There you are, then. I knew the two of you would get along like a house on fire. Screams, flames, people running for safety. And you're going back to be an assassin, are you? She sneered. I don't think so. I've inhumed a pyramid, a pantheon, and the entire old kingdom. It may be worth trying something else. By the way, you haven't been finding little green shoots springing up wherever you walk, have you? No, what a stupid idea. Tepic relaxed. It really was all over then. "'Don't let the grass grow under your feet. That's the important thing,' he said. "'And you haven't seen any seagulls around?' "'There's lots of them today, or didn't you notice?' "'Yes. That's good, I think.' "'You bastard watched them talk a little more. "'That peculiar, trailing-off, desultory kind of conversation "'that two people of opposite sexes engage in "'when they have something else on their minds. "'It was much easier with camels, "'when the female merely had to check the male's methodology.' Then they kissed in a fairly chaste fashion, insofar as camels are any judge. A decision was reached. You bastard lost interest at this point and decided to eat his lunch again. In the beginning, it was peaceful in the valley. The river, its banks as yet untamed, wandered languidly through thickets of rush and papyrus. Ibises waded in the shallows, in the deeps, hippos rose and sank slowly like pickled eggs. The only sound in the damp silence was the occasional plop of a fish or hiss of a crocodile. Dios lay in the mud for some time. He wasn't sure how he'd got there, or why half his robes were torn off and the other half scorched black. He dimly recalled a loud noise and a sensation of extreme speed, while at the same time he'd been standing still. Right at this moment he didn't want any answers. Answers implied questions, and questions never got anyone anywhere. Questions only spoiled things. 
The mud was cool and soothing, and he didn't need to know anything else for a while. The sun went down. Various nocturnal prowlers wandered near to Dios, and by some animal instinct decided that he certainly wasn't going to be worth all the trouble that would accrue from biting his legs off. The sun rose again. Herons honked. Mist unspooled between the pools was burned up as the sky turned from blue to new bronze, and time unrolled in glorious uneventfulness for Dios until an alien noise took the silence and did the equivalent of cutting it into small pieces with a rusty bread knife. It was a noise, in fact, like a donkey being chainsawed. As sounds went, it was to melody what a box full of dates is to high-performance motocross. Nevertheless, as other voices joined it, similar but different, in a variety of fractured keys and broken tones, the overall effect was curiously attractive. It had lure. It had pull. It had a strange... suction. The noise reached a plateau, one pure note made of a succession of discordances, and then, for just the fraction of a second, the voices split away, each along a vector. There was a stirring of the air, a flickering of the sun and a dozen camels appeared over the distant hills, skinny and dusty, running towards the water. Birds erupted from the reeds, leftover saurians slid smoothly off the sandbanks. Within a minute the shore was a mass of churned mud as the knobbly-kneed creatures jostled nose-deep in the water. Dios sat up and saw his staff lying in the mud. It was a little scorched but still intact, and he noticed what somehow had never been apparent before— before? Had there been a before? There had certainly been a dream, something like a dream. Each snake had its tail in its mouth. Down the slope after the camels, his ragged family trailing behind him, was a small brown figure waving a camel prod. He looked hot and very bewildered. He looked, in fact, like someone in need of good advice and careful guidance. Dios's eyes turned back to the staff. It meant something very important, he knew. He couldn't remember what, though. All he could remember was that it was very heavy, yet at the same time hard to put down. Very hard to put down. Better not to pick it up, he thought. Perhaps just pick it up for a while, and go and explain about gods and why pyramids were so important. And then he could put it down afterwards, certainly. Sighing, pulling the remnants of his robes around him to give himself dignity, Using the staff to steady himself, Dios went forth. That is the end of Pyramids. It was written by Terry Pratchett and read by Nigel Planer. This has been an Isis Audiobooks presentation. 
For further details of our extensive range of books on audio cassette and CD, please call our free phone number, which is 0800 731 5637.